G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RVC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone, your generic fruit-based device. Really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RVC podcast, and we don't ask for anything in return, really, but we'd be incredibly grateful if you could pop to Apple Podcast, Acast, or wherever you're listening to this um, podcast and leave us a review. Obviously, a five-star review would be great. Other star reviews can lead to other podcasts, um, but if you could take a couple of minutes of your time, that would be fantastic. So joining um, Brian and myself in the studio today, we have Mike Hutzen, one of our... Um, uh, equine internal medicine senior lecturers here at the RVC. Um, thank you very much, Mike, for for joining us. It's a pleasure. Though. And uh, and what I thought we would um, talk about today would be um, so, so gastric equine gastric ulceration syndrome. So um, so maybe I could uh, first ask you, Mike, um, what what is it? Quite quite a, a long name for, uh, for for something. Yeah, no, I guess it is. Uh, um, I think it's very similar to uh, uh, the umbrella term used in human medicine, which is called PUD or peptic ulcer disease and, and uh, incorporates a large number of different diseases under one umbrella term. And uh, in equine medicine, um, uh, we recognize that uh, gastric ulcers, um, as it were, are related to not only two different anatomical regions of the stomach, um, if you remember, horses have both a squamous and a glandular mucosa in their stomachs, um, but also uh, the disease uh, pathogenesis and uh, epidemiology is very different between these two different um, mucosa. So um, we use the term equine gastric ulcer syndrome to describe both diseases of the glandular mucosa as well as the squamous mucosa. Um, and under that umbrella term, we have a specific term for diseases related to the squamous epithelium uh, called equine squamous gastric disease and then equine glandular gastric disease to describe those diseases of the uh, glandular mucosa. So big mouth, mouthful, but um, that's the way it is, unfortunately. <laughs> fair, fair enough. And, uh, and so is this seen in, in all equine breeds? Um, it's traditionally been recognised... Uh, uh, in thoroughbreds and uh, horses that are in uh, competition exercise. Um, but more and more it's been recognised that the disease affects other populations of horses. And in fact, um, a relatively recent study identified that even uh, brood mares and leisure horses out in pasture um, are affected by Aegis, um, which is equine gastric ulcer syndrome, um, and and so uh, even though it appears to be more common in in animals uh, under intense exercise or training regimens, um, it does affect all all types of breeds and all types of horses. Okay, and so how, how does one diagnose this, Michael? What what are the are the clinical signs of horses that uh, that might sort of present with this with this problem, or is it seen more as a um, a, a a silent disease as it were well again a very good question uh, one of the big complications about this disease in, in horses is we actually do not really understand the clinical significance of it if we if we look at the clinical signs that are recognized by uh, vets and owners and which have been reported in the literature they vary from things like weight loss uh, poor performance all the way through to colic and um sometimes uh, behavioral changes, aggression, that kind of thing. But there's very, very little hard evidence to suggest a, a statistical association between these clinical signs and what we see on gastroscopy when we uh, identify these ulcers. And actually, funnily enough, um, here at the RVC, we're currently conducting a study 
where we um, uh, are collecting information uh, via questionnaire from owners um, uh, about what they perceive as clinical signs of gastric ulceration. And we are then comparing it to what we actually see on gastros gastroscopy. And what we'd like to do is ultimately uh, come up with uh, a statistical association between different types of clinical signs and um, and, and and the actual macroscopic diseases we see it on the gastroscope, uh, almost as if we could then say, well, an animal with colic has got a three times, uh, it's three times more likely to have ulcers than an animal without colic. Um, that's the ultimate goal, really. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so when you work these cases up, Mike, do it say gastroscopy, is, is that is that what you, you, you do? There's nothing else really that you're particularly interested in? or, or that Yeah, other... I mean, from a diagnostic point of view, uh, we... We are limited to gastroscopy. Um, it, it's considered the gold standard. And um, I've actually just recently completed my PhD looking at um, trying to develop a blood test uh, to, to diagnose gastric ulcers. And although there were some potentially positive results in foals, um, ultimately um, it did not appear to be um, a particularly valid diagnostic test in horses. And all the other tests, things like fecal occult test and, and other things that might have might be used in humans and in small animals, um, are unfortunately just, well, they certainly don't appear to, to have any diagnostic validity in the horse. So really we, rec we rely on gastroscopy. And the other thing you must realize is in the horse, you know, it's a long way down to the stomach. So we need um, a pretty long gastroscope. It's a three-meter gastroscope we use and um, uh, yeah most practitioners uh, out in the field now have this this modality available to them and, and so I think the di diagnosis of this, this disease is becoming more and more common. And, and does it have a characteristic look or, or actually do, do we do we know that what you can visualize and what you can see on the scope is not necessarily what you see histopathologically? Is there is there a bit of variance with, with that? Yeah, I can see there's not your first rodeo, Dom. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, we have that challenge as well as, I guess, uh, anybody else uh, uh, looking at ulcers and other species. Um, we What we see on, on endoscopy um, uh, is usually uh, in the squamous epithelium um, uh, an ulcerative or erosive disease, um, which is quite easy to recognize. Um, but there are, again, studies out there that have demonstrated that there's not a good correlation between the histopathology of, of the lesions and what we see on endoscopy. Um, and it does put into question potentially uh, our interpretation of what we see on gastroscopy. Um, the glandular mycosis is a completely different ballgame there. Um, it's not so much an ulcerative disease, but more gastritis. Um, and the lesions are characterized, characterized by infiltrates, inflammatory infiltrates, things like neutrophils and lymphocytes, plasma cells. Um, and so uh, it's, I think, a lot more difficult for us to recognize the, uh, or interpret the, the, the significance and the severity of the disease on gastroscopy by just looking at the lesions. There's a variety of different types of lesions. Um, and we are hindered by the fact that we can't get good biopsies from, from these because, of course, they the little pinch biopsies, as you know, through the gastroscope, and um, we are only really able to get the surface of those lesions. So, um, unfortunately, uh, we, we are limited to what we see visually, but I'm not convinced that it always uh, uh, equates to what is actually going on um, uh, at a cellular level. 
So, so are there other things, I suppose, probably just to take a step back, Mike, are there things that you would do before you, you do um, gastroscopy? Would you, like, you know, maybe before a client comes in, or would you have a treatment trial or find out what they're eating, or, or are there other things you would do before that, we, or, or because of the maybe the prevalence of it, do you say, yeah, let's yeah, escape? And... For sure. Um, uh, we... we recommend that um, if an owner or, uh, or referring vet is concerned about gastric ulcers that uh, the horse's gastroscope the reason for that is um, a lot of horses goes back to what I was saying about the clinical signs and, and our difficulty in knowing what the the true association between the clinical signs and the prevalence of disease is um, a lot of horses have what we call silent gastric ulcerations so they may not show any clinical signs and they have quite severe ulcers and then other horses will show obvious apparent clinical signs and on gastroscopy they've got very mild lesions so because omeprazole uh, is not without its risks and also because it's very expensive um, we would recommend any suspicious cases to be gastroscoped uh, prior to starting any kind of treatment Um, and and I think it's very important that people start to do that because um, it'll allow us to understand the disease better as well. Are there any other um, associations uh, that that uh, this does? You know, are the other other things that you might find, I suppose, such as neoplasia or parasites mm-hmm. or a bacterial component? Because when we were saying before that when the mics were closed, there's a very different disease in horses than it is, say, with, with dogs or or, mm. or people. Absolutely, Dom. Um, I guess to, to take a step back first, if we look at the squamous uh, epithelium, so equine squamous gastric disease, um, it's a disease of of acid exposure really um, uh, and this is particularly in animals that are, are exercising at a high level um, basically the gastric um, content splashes up against the, the squamous epithelium which is really an extenuation of the extension of the uh, esophagus and um, we believe these animals get a very similar disease to human athletes called gastric esophageal reflux disease and causes pain which is then manifested as things like colic or poor performance and so um in those cases, um, uh, it's really just simply a management uh, uh, issue and um, a treatment with uh, an acid suppressant, something like omeprazole, is very effective. The second type of disease we see um, with the squamous epithelium is where we've got a primary underlying gastric uh, gastrointestinal disturbance causing pyloric stenosis. And in that case also, again, the same uh, disease uh, occurs in that um, the acid uh, you get acid injury of the of, of the squamous mucosa, but that is because of a secondary gastrointestinal problem rather than a simple management problem in an otherwise healthy gut. Um, as for other diseases that affect the squamous epithelium um, and could be confused with ulcers, there's very few actually. Um, we do see on on very rare occasions squamous uh, cell carcinomas of the of the squamous epithelium in in the horse, but it's very rare. Parasites, the only parasite we we may potentially uh, uh, what might potentially be associated with ulcers um, of the squamous epithelium would be uh, Gastrophilus um, larvae, which um, which we do see on from time to time, but they're definitely not a, f- a major feature of the disease. So really, it's it's. If you see ulcers, they're, they're associated in the squamous epithelium. They're associated with what we talked about. Then we get to the glandular epithelium, which is a lot more complex. Um, uh, there, uh, we believe that the disease is related to a loss of a, the mucosal protectant um, effect that the normal animal would have, um, and that perpetuates 
an underlying disease, which at this stage we're not sure exactly what's causing it. So we know it's an inflammatory disease and a gastritis, but studies so far have ruled out uh, non-steroidals as as a cause. They've also ruled out a bacterial component, so there's no evidence of helicobacter in in horses at all. so really, uh, at this stage, we, we know that stress has got a component to play, is a component of the disease in, in glandular uh, gastric disease. Um, and there's some good studies out there now that suggest that um, animals that are either um, have more than one handler or more than one rider, animals that have a, a very high frequency of exercise rather than exercise intensity, seem to be more likely to be uh, affected by gastric glandular disease. And interestingly enough, very recently I just reviewed a paper where they uh, demonstrated an, an, an uh, exaggerated cortisol response in, uh, in animals uh, that are predisposed to, to gastric glandular disease, suggesting again this stress component. So there's a lot we don't know about the disease um, and a lot we're learning about it. And really, to summarize, 20 years ago, you know, uh, gastric ulcers in horses were not even really recognised, and then there was a big, big uh, a drive towards recognising squamous gastric disease. But in those days, the gastroscopes and the technique wasn't so good, in that most people were not able to actually get down to the glandular part of the of the, of the stomach. So, glandular disease has been unrecognised for many, many years, even though it's probably been there. And it's only in the last five to ten years that we've started to recognize it, and, and it's, a, it's a very active area of research now. So I think we've got our handle on squamous gastric disease in horses, but we really don't have a hand a good handle on glandular disease in horses. So you say it's partly immune-mediated disease, the glandular Definitely. disease. Has, are people trying to give immunosuppressives or local yeah. immunosuppressives? So um, uh, we do believe that there may be an association between the lesions we see in the glandular mucosa and inflammatory bowel disease right. in horses, and that is also the case, I think, in some human conditions. Um, and so, yeah, on occasion we would use corticosteroids, but uh, the current consensus uh, among specialists would be that we still believe uh, an acid suppressant um, is primary treatment in these cases, um, uh, and and that would be what we would focus on initially. Um, whether or not corticosteroids or other immunosuppressants will have an effect, um, uh, I guess I can't tell you at this stage. We, there's no good studies out there to suggest that. Um, we do use it on occasion if we're not winning with uh, conventional conventional treatment. Um, which we can talk about a bit more if you'd like. Yeah, absolutely. So you, so you mentioned that omeprazole is the is, yeah. is that the cornerstone or absolutely. Other, other drugs? No, have no, been no. Omeprazole would be the cornerstone of treatment um, uh, for squamous gastric disease. It's extremely effective. Um, w- within two to three weeks of, of an appropriate dose of omeprazole orally, uh, you have a, a, a seventy to eighty percent um, success rate in, in healing. Uh, of course, together with management changes. Um, with glandular gastric disease, often the treatment is much longer and more pro- prolonged, and we also combine it with sucralfate, um, which acts as, a, as effectively a mucosal protectant um, and, as you know, um, also has uh, yeah, anti- uh, uh, prostaglandin analog effects. Um, well, it stimulates prostaglandin secretion. Um, yeah, and, and if that doesn't work, uh, there are some second- and third-line treatments we would use with uh, gastric glandular gastric disease um, uh, we could potentially use misoprostol for its prostaglandin analog effect um, and very recently um, a product has come into the market uh, which is a, um, a long-acting omeprazole injectable formulation 
which has a, um, a effect of up to seven days. And you can imagine in the horse and horse management, um, that's very, very uh, uh, desirable because, uh, you know, you don't have to give the animals the, the drug every day. There are also some, without going into too many details, there are also some other issues with the um, absorption of omeprazole orally. It's acid labile, and uh, uh, so it needs to be buffered. And secondly, if it's fed on a, if it's given on a, on, a, on a full stomach, it will not be absorbed. So it's very difficult to get people to comply to treatment. So this long-acting omeprazole has a lot of potential. Unfortunately. Um, I'm not going to get into the details of it now, but um, there are some uh, issues with regards to the cascade, and 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 uh, uh, we haven't really got around that. So at this stage, all I can say is that uh, you would need to follow the normal cascade prior to considering using that. And uh, and so with omeprazole, I imagine these um, horses are on it quite long term. Do you mm. do you see any problems with with horses that are on omeprazole? Yeah, again. Great question. I, I um, we've always believed that we don't see problems. Um, uh, and you know, I know that some some uh, training yards where horses are kept on prophylactic omeprazole for for months, if not years, uh, if they've got enough money to do so. Um, but as you well know, uh, there's more and more evidence in the literature now to suggest that omeprazole is associated with acute kidney injury. Um, and um, it does concern me that. I don't see any good reason why uh, the horse will be spared from that. Um, but the com- problem is we haven't recognized it yet. That doesn't mean it, it's not there. Um, but I do think it's something that, that we should make, be cognizant about. And, and um, I would like to actually uh, look at renal parameters in horses on omeprazole in more detail at some point in my career if I get a chance. Because <laughs> my understanding, Mike, that, that uh, omeprazole is great if you have ulcers, but it doesn't necessarily prevent ulcers from from occurring is that is that right so you see or is that yeah no i i hear what you say i mean uh, if we go back to the original studies uh, that looked at um omeprazole in, in racehorses um back in the old days where they were interested in squamous gastric disease um they demonstrated a therapeutic effect at four milligrams per kilogram once a day but they also recognized a prophylactic effect at a much lower dose, a two milligram per half the dose, two milligram per kilogram dose. Now, I'm guessing that prophylactic effect is that simply no acid, no ulcer. And, and with these racehorses, if you have a, a neutral pH, uh, that acid splashing up onto the squamous because as they're galloping, uh, uh, it doesn't burn, burn the squamous epithelium. Okay. So, yeah, there probably is a prophylactic effect for glandular gastric disease. Again, we don't know. Okay. <laughs> There's a lot of we don't knows here, unfortunately. <laughs> and and uh, and what do you think is gonna is gonna change in the future? Actually, before before we get to that, um, you said you did some work with with foals. So foals are not uh, immune to 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 this. No, no. Uh, on the contrary, really, and they can get severe gastric ulcers, um, uh, usually around weaning time. But also neonatal foals can also be affected by it. Um, and the, the 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 disease is similar, but also dissimilar in that um, foals tend to get um, uh, quite severe consequences of untreated gastric ulcers. So weaning foals will often get pyloric stenosis due to fibrosis because of uh, glandular duodenal ulcers, in fact. Mm-hmm. And they will get so bad that they may even have uh, require um, a bypass surgery in order to, to have a functional life. Um, so... Uh, w- 
everything I've been talking about really related to adult horses, foals and gastric ulcers is a completely different ball game. Um, we tend to treat them aggressively and, and early because of the potential severe, if not fatal, ramifications. There are reports of, of gastric rupture um, in foals, which we just don't see in adult horses. So that's a, a another story for another podcast. Fair enough. And, and so, what, what do you think in general? Like people are doing well in treating um, equine gastric ulceration syndrome, and what what can we do better? Well, I think um, we've come a long way, and uh, people are, are are very aware of it now. And um, uh, we've recently published a consensus statement through the Equine uh, College, uh, uh, the European College of Equine Internal Medicine, which has been instrumental in i think uh, um, getting everybody on the same page with regards to treatment um, i think the biggest worry from my point of view is that um, currently gastric ulcers because it's difficult to know the real significance of the clinical signs um, is a little bit of a uh, dustbin diagnosis um, for anything that uh, may look like ulcers but might not be so for example an animal's poor performance or animal that's um, uh, got a variety of different clinical signs it's immediately assumed it's gastric ulcers when in many cases it's not it might be lameness or some other disease and um, that's why i encourage practitioners to to gastroscope these horses so that we don't end up treating horses unnecessarily and, and what do you think you the future sort of holds would there be other tests that that maybe come more biomarkers yeah, that people yeah, can definitely. measure. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's just a paper that's been published in Equine Veterinary Journal recently where they've been identifying, uh, so a proteinomic study where they've been identifying um, uh, biomarkers for gastric ulcers, uh, and I definitely think that would be the future. I think if we could come up with a more accurate, cheap, and easy way to diagnose ulcers, it would, would definitely be very valuable. Whether you like it or not, it's got a very high prevalence prevalence in the horse. Up to 100% of racehorses have got stomach ulcers. Yeah, so uh, it's a disease we we we're not going to be able to just uh, ignore. And you you worked in different parts of the world, and yes, it does, doesn't doesn't matter where you are yeah, in the no, world. Throughout, it's a, it's a management disease, uh, and and as I say, primarily when we talk about squamous gastric disease, primarily related to to uh, horses under intense exercise and management and then from glandular point of view uh, um, uh, also uh, um, uh, competition horses and um, but then it seems to be more related to the stress of management and the uh, and the uh, frequency of exercise versus squamous disease where it seems to be more related to um, management factors like feeding and um, and exercise intensity of exercise so there's some differences but yeah, and do do you think might there, as far as like the future holds, where there might be other drugs, or because of the the, the size of species you deal with, that actually a well, new I mean, drug and cost might yeah, be yeah, I don't think so. I mean, meprazole, as I say, is very effective, um, um, and this long-acting uh, formulation definitely I th- can see being the future. Now, whether or not it will be able to be licensed uh, through the in, in the UK, uh, as as other formulations of omeprazole, uh, oral formulations are, uh, is yet to be seen currently as a compounded um, product. So we shall see. Fair enough. <laughs> well, do you think we've uh, we've missed anything about the uh, about the dis- disease itself, or the syndrome? I should say, not a disease. Sorry. That- no, I, I don't think so. I mean, I could wax lyrical for hours, I think, on this. <laughs> but I think we've covered the most important aspects of it. I think as a take-home message uh, to practitioners and students and, 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 uh, and owners out there, I, I think it's important for us all to be aware that gastric ulcers or gastric ulcer syndrome in horses is, is a very 
prevalent uh, disease um, and um, early diagnosis and appropriate treatment is the way to to deal with it and and um, not to assume a horse has got uh, aegis uh, without um, getting a definitive diagnosis. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for your time today, Mike, and we'll uh, we'll wrap it up there. It's a pleasure, Dom. Many thanks for listening, and uh, don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your generic fruit-based device, and that way you don't even have to worry about missing a podcast. If you could leave us a, a review, that would be great, and we'll play some show notes on the obviously pages, so just type in obviously clinical podcast in your search engine of choice, and it should be top of the tree. So if you have any comments or suggestions for this podcast, please get in touch. You can either email dbarfield.rvc.ac.uk or tweet at Don Barfield. Until next time, bye-bye.